0: Depending on how old you are, the phrase mommy blog may ring a bell. Before there were influencers, there were mommy bloggers, writing and posting videos and photos of their lives and sharing a lot about their kids. Now in the age of TikTok and Instagram, there has been a rise in family video blogs. They're called vlogs, and there's more of this content out there than ever before and more discussion than ever about the way some of this is monetized. Even when parents aren't making money, there can be serious privacy implications for their kids. I personally love TikTok and Instagram, and I like some influencers too, but I've often wondered, how would it feel to be one of their kids, especially as they got older? And recently, some lawmakers started digging in on this too.
1: A couple months ago, a hearing happened at the Washington State Legislature and we heard from Cam Barrett, who has had her life put online by one of her parents.
0: When I was nine years old, the intimate details of my first period were shared online. At 12, I received a DM from a man who I didn't know who saw me riding my bike and told me he followed me home. At 15, I was in a car accident in which the fire department had to come with the jaws of life to
1: remove a car door off of my leg. Instead of a hand being offered to hold, a camera was shoved in my face. Mr. Chairman and ranking members of the committee, I plead you to be the voice for this generation of children because I know firsthand what it's like to not have a choice in which a digital footprint you didn't create follows
0: you around. One of my colleagues has been writing about people like Cam. Taylor Lorenz is a tech columnist at The Post, and she says, right
1: now, there are zero legal protections for kids who end up on these vlogs. Washington State and Illinois are two of the first states to actually take up this issue at all, really, and try and codify some rules around it. Unfortunately, the bill in Washington state failed, but in Illinois, it passed the Senate. It still has to go through the House there. What they attempt to do is give kids some sort of agency in this whole situation.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Jordan Marie Smith. It's Friday, May 12th. Today, we talk about the efforts to create protections for the children of influencers and what all of this means for the rest of us who want to post responsibly about the kids in our lives. Taylor has been covering the internet for years, and she's done a lot of reporting on how it makes kids feel to grow up very online.
1: So I actually did a story a couple years ago where I interviewed dozens and dozens of children under the age of 10 about the first time that they Googled themselves and discovered that they had an internet presence. The responses they gave me were pretty shocking. It was kind of a range of emotions. Some kids I talked to were really upset and horrified. One kid talked about actually getting his own Instagram account for the first time and discovering that there was a hashtag associated with his name already. And he clicked that hashtag and found dozens of photos of himself as a child that his relatives and family friends had been posting. And he was mortified. Other kids said that it made them feel violated. They felt embarrassed. They felt like there was this picture of themselves and this reputation basically that they had online that they didn't have any say over. And then some of the kids, I would say about 30%, actually were upset that there wasn't more about themselves online, feeling like they didn't exist because there weren't Google images of themselves or feeling like that without an internet presence, They weren't alive themselves. And that part was equally as dystopian to me because I think it just shows how intertwined the internet has become with our sense of self, our perception of who someone is. And I think it's really dangerous that these kids are sort of participating in this world that they don't really have any agency in.
0: And Taylor says the impact is even more extreme when parents are getting paid to put their kids online.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there are tons of social media creators out there who make a living documenting their lives and that content often features their children. So there are people that are so-called family vloggers where they basically vlog their lives as a family. Often they have something unique. So, you know, it'll be like how I feed a family of seven every day, right? And it's the mom or dad and they're vlogging their life and sort of talking about their life. And this was really revelatory. I mean, this goes back to the dawn of this whole influencer culture, which really started with mommy bloggers. And a lot of times the sentiment behind these channels or blogs or social media accounts is a really positive one. It's a way to trade parenting techniques, talk about... Hey, here's how I set up the playroom for my one-year-old, you know, or here's the best toys that I've found to calm a child with special needs or, you know, things like that. Where it gets exploitative is when the kids are heavily featured and when the content stops being about maybe a resource to other parents and starts just being pure entertainment. So this was a big problem in the prank era of YouTube in 2017 and 2018, when parents were pranking their own children and filming their reactions. And you saw children crying and getting really upset. You know, one vlogger family famously lost custody of their kids for the really cruel pranks that they were playing on their children for views. So, you know, this is a whole really wide network. There's literally hundreds of thousands of family accounts on social media from Instagram to YouTube to blogs. Some of these channels are making millions of dollars a year. And the kids are right now legally entitled to none of that, despite the fact that they star on these channels as child entertainers. So what is being done to protect these kids? There is not much legislation, basically none. I mean, it's really just these two state bills, one of which failed so far. It will be reintroduced next session in Washington state. And then I mentioned the Illinois bill, um, which is very similar to the Washington bill, which did pass the state Senate. However, it removed all of the privacy protections, which I would argue are just as essential as the monetary protections. So both of these bills do essential things, which is basically try and protect kids' privacy, give them the right when they turn 18 to make that choice. Like, hey, look, I want to be able to petition Facebook or YouTube or whatever to have all this content with me and it removed give them a sense of agency over the content that features them. And then the other part of the bill is focused on monetary compensation. So, you know, if these kids have grown up having their likeness monetized, they deserve a portion of that revenue, legally codifying their entitlement to that. It's unclear whether these state legislations can even be enforced. I mean, what we really need is something on a national level. I mean, we know that these tech companies would fight this tooth and nail. Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, he's really the only one that has spoken on this issue. He told me for my story, child labor in the online influencer industry seems fraught with problems. At least he's talking about the issue. I still, you know, would love to see any kind of national legislation introduced because I think until national lawmakers take this up and there's real advocacy here, nothing's going to happen. Did you speak to any advocates who are pushing for legislation? Yeah, I spoke to Chris McCarty, who is an 18-year-old student in Washington who's been a fierce advocate. I think as a member of Gen Z, they feel like this is a really important issue, that it has far-reaching consequences
0: I think I've identified a lot of problems with the system through this advocacy work, and it makes me less likely to use social media platforms in the future.
1: They care a lot about privacy and giving kids autonomy over their own internet presence. We know that an internet presence is for life. You know, ironically, parents are always the ones telling their kids, your online footprint is forever. And then in that same breath, they're often uploading photos of their kids to Facebook and Instagram. So Chris has been a really vocal Gen Z advocate there. A colleague of mine
0: grew up on a family blog. So that's blog with a B, non-monetized. And this colleague, she faced bullying actually from one of her teachers at school because of content that her parent was sharing on her blog. So I think In a very real way, there is harm that comes from this. And as a parent, it's their responsibility to show their kids how to use the internet responsibly and to make sure that they are
1: modeling that responsible use themselves. I spoke to one young woman who had her whole life blasted out on Facebook by her mother in really invasive and horrible ways. And then I did speak to one 14-year-old who is featured in a family vlog right now on a channel with millions of subscribers who's essentially been terrorized into silence Mm -hmm. by her parents who are making quite a bit of money. And when I attempted to get her on the record, her parents forced her to sign an NDA and threatened basically to sue their own child. And I don't even know if a parent can NDA their own child, but I think that just speaks to how brainbroken some of these parents working in this system are, where you know they're not concerned about their child's welfare. They're concerned about money and attention and their own clout, and that's a huge problem.
0: After the break, we get into why there haven't been more legal protections for kids online and what you should think about before you post your kids. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Taylor, I have to be honest, I'm kind of surprised that there are no protections for these children who also happen to be influencers I mean, child stars have protections in film and television. Why aren't there protections?
1: Child stars got protections after decades of advocacy and a lot of hard work. Protections don't just happen overnight, right? Regulation doesn't just come out of nowhere. You really need advocates. You need people to fight tooth and nail, to raise awareness about this issue and bring it to these lawmakers who have absolutely no idea what's going on. I mean, the whole influencer industry is barely 20 years old. But for the majority of that time, there's been no money in it. You know, the real money has really only started to enter this space in the last five or six years. And lawmakers can barely understand how TikTok works.
0: Mr. Chude, does TikTok access the home Wi-Fi network? Only if the user turns on the Wi-Fi. I, I'm sorry, I may not understand the So if I have a TikTok app on my phone and my phone is on my home Wi-Fi network, does TikTok access that network? It will have to to access the network to get connections to the internet, if, if that's the question. Is it possible then that it could access other devices on that home Wi-Fi network?
1: So they certainly have no understanding of the nuances of online monetization. It's also really hard because there's, the thresholds are are not set. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of these family channels or parents, they start earnestly. They start by saying, look, you know, our family goes on a lot of adventures. Let's share videos online or photos of all of our travels and all of the cool stuff that we're doing with our children so people can follow along. They start to get a small audience. Suddenly they have maybe 5,000 followers, 10,000 followers. Brands start reaching out. Or they reach that threshold for monetization on YouTube and suddenly they're making, maybe even it's just a couple hundred dollars a month, but that can add up. What is the line? You know, you don't need a certain level of followers to be an influencer. There's things called micro-influencers where you can monetize with as little as a thousand followers. So this whole industry is so new and so misunderstood, especially by people in power, that there's just, there's no oversight. What are some of the risks to
0: putting your kids online like this and making money off
1: of them? The downside is huge. It's privacy violations. It's, you risk putting your child in danger. I think anytime you, you start to have fame and fandom, you also have stalkers and creeps and it can really affect a child's sense of self and their self-worth, especially if they start to understand and equate following with their self-worth. They can start to feel very upset. For instance, if they don't get views or if they lose subscribers. It it teaches them to perform and view themselves not, you know, instead of having a childhood, right, where you have privacy and freedom to express yourself in a safe area, suddenly you're performing for millions and you have this audience of millions and you feel mm. really this loss of sense of self. I mean, look at child stars over the years. We're all familiar with the disastrous consequences of child stardom, right? A lot of these kids turn to really unhealthy coping mechanisms. They have a really broken sense of self. Now we're democratizing that, right? And giving it to all these children. That's really dangerous. We, We, You know, kids are not psychologically prepared to be beholden to an audience of millions on the internet. It can also, you know, provide opportunities. I don't want to say that this is a total net negative because you look at people, for instance, like Jojo Siwa that started out as a child entertainer and has gone on to build a hugely successful business. So I think there's just a lot of tricky questions to ask here. And I think a lot of parents are way too cavalier about putting content about their children on the internet. So Taylor, I'm
0: kind of curious in your reporting, if you've noticed that parents, everyday parents are kind of just rethinking how their kids should be shared online or thinking with an extra layer about what they share about their kids online?
1: Unfortunately, I don't think many parents are thinking about this at all. It seems to be a huge problem. I mean, people want to villainize these family vloggers, but the reality is that all of these people started as regular parents that just decided to share the content about their kids or themselves on the internet, often for good reason sometimes, right? You want to share photos of your kids, you know, with family members, maybe. So maybe you post about them on Instagram. I mean, Instagram and Facebook seem to be the gateway drugs almost where, you know, people just start posting about their family, posting about their kids, and then suddenly they're expanding to TikTok and YouTube. I would say set up a private iCloud, you know, none of this has to be public. I think that's the big problem is that You're essentially building a narrative about your child and your child's life and their personality and who they are on the internet without their consent and not, you know, crossing out their face or, you know, anonymizing them or keeping it on a private account. And the thing is, is that a lot of these parents, they're young, they're millennial parents. And I say this as a millennial myself. We grew up without having to think about this stuff. When millennials started, you know, we started with Facebook. The concept of the influencer was so nascent. But again, it makes it hard when we are in America where we have zero data privacy protections and zero understanding of privacy. I think European content creators and parents seem to have a better understanding of this stuff because they have more robust privacy protections in the first place. In America, we just lawmakers don't take that stuff up. It's because it's not in Facebook's interests or whatever these big tech, you know, the big tech spends a huge amount lobbying against these type of protections. And so there's just not the public awareness that there is elsewhere.
0: That's really interesting that tech companies actually lobby against these kinds of bills?
1: Of course, because it hurts their revenue. The last thing that they need, that this, this would be completely against their self-interest, right? Mm-hmm. They wanna monetize. They want everyone to monetize as much as possible through their platforms. If there's suddenly rules, and also if suddenly if everyone that turns 18 can have content removed from the platform, that just leads to less content on their platform, which is less eyeballs and less content that they can then monetize.
0: So what advice do the young people you've talked to, what advice do they have for families?
1: Your child is not your property, right? Like your child is a a human being that is going to grow up to be a person in this world. And they have a level of autonomy. Yes, you are their parent, right? And you you are guiding them and you are helping them and you are responsible for caring for them. They're not just some tool that you can use to exploit for views on the internet or commodified just keep things private. There are so many amazing ways to share photos with families. You can start a group album on on iPhoto. You can upload things to the cloud and, and have restrictive sharing permissions. You know, you can still post that photo of your kid maybe on their birthday, but just put an emoji over their face or something. Give them some semblance of privacy. Don't put their full name out there. Anything you can do to protect these kids. I mean, You have classrooms, nursery schools. I mean, there are nursery schools that have Instagram accounts that post photos of the toddlers all day. And it's it's well-meaning because they want parents to be able to keep up with what their kids are doing all day. So they post about these children on Instagram stories. There are better formats to do that. Social media is not the only way to share information. And so before you start a classroom blog or Instagram account, or you know, there's all these sports teams and clubs that post mm-hmm. information, right? About who won the little league game of the week or whatever. All of that feeds into narratives and a digital footprint for these children that have no say over any of this. And it's very easy to villainize these parents and say, oh, I would never be a monstrous YouTuber. No, if you're a parent, think about the amount of stuff that you've shared about your kid on the internet, even inadvertently, and maybe consider, you know, taking down some of that stuff. Taylor Lorenz, thank you so much
0: for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Taylor Lorenz is a tech columnist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by me, it was mixed by Sam Baer, and edited by Maggie Penman. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Alahe Azadi, Lucy Perkins, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Renny Spernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Jordan Marie Smith. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.